it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, absolutely, Gavin. We could not have won the war without the Royal Army and the Royal Air Force. You guys were the only people in the AOR that that had any beer. The fighting, not so much. Yes. The following podcast contains... All the sex, violence, swearing, and farts intact. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you thought the end of the Cold War meant global peace, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 393, A Feel-Good War, part one of Operation Desert Storm edition of the show. We talk about that time we went to war just for the vibes. Stay tuned. What the Hell We Think Podcast is brought to you by Secondhand Booms, your source for pre-owned military hardware. Are you a developing nation with a big need for weapons but only a small budget to buy? You a despot, unfairly blacklisted from the international arms market. Secondhand Booms is the solution to your arsenal issues. Our equipment is older, gently used, and excellently maintained. From rifles to armored vehicles, from air defenses to anti-ship weapons, Secondhand Booms has what you need to equip your militia, guerrilla band, or revolutionary guard, all at great prices. Will you be able to go up against American Special Forces? No. You can definitely dominate your neighbors and your citizens just fine. Secondhand Booms. Our guns aren't new, but you know what? They'll do. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Ground forces are not engaged. This conflict started August 2nd when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Kuwait, a member of the Arab League and a member of the United Nations, was crushed its people brutalized. Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. It's no great secret, but I'll I'll repeat it here for posterity. I never wanted to join the military. And yet... I found myself spending a decade in said military. A lot of military brats wind up enlisted in the military. People like to talk about a family of service, generations answering the call, a proud tradition of patriotism, but you know what? Total bullshit. A lot of military brats find themselves in the service simply because there's no other option. When you grow up in the life, the life is all you know. You're no more prepared to be in a civilian life than you are to be on a, I don't know, an Amish farm. And if you thought otherwise, well, uh... Look, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. An article in the Military Times published in 2021 said that two-thirds of military brats planned on serving in the military. Those are numbers that do not lie. Your world is what you know. Military brats, no military life. This isn't to say I was forced to enlist. I was simply informed that I would need to do something once I graduated high school, that I should consider this the last call for the parental gravy train. You don't have to go home, but you can stay here. 
So, since I was an apathetic slacker who had no fucking clue what to do with his life that didn't involve working the window at a Taco John's drive-thru, I thought, Sign me up. And went looking for the branch of service where it was least likely that I might ever be placed in combat. And I thought to myself, why not uh, aim high? America, it's a great country. Protecting it is a great way of life. The United States Air Force. Find out how you can be part of it. Aim high. Air Force. Also, you know, my dad was in the Air Force, so it was pretty much the only option. So, anyway, I, I joined up and naturally found myself in the only fucking job in the goddamn Air Force where I might be placed in a combat situation. You a pilot? Oh, God, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking about enlisted. I was uh, an Air Force cop, which is the closest thing to being infantry in a service that doesn't have infantry. Still, you know, at the time, it didn't seem like a bad idea. It was abundantly clear by the late 1980s when I enlisted this that this whole Cold War thing was all but over, and my chances of ever going to war seemed laughably small. After, after all, who, who was going to fight the winner of the Cold War? There was a little tiff down in Panama, but that was more of a drug raid in the war, and I figured eh, I can ride this last year out of my time in uniform in stateside peacetime comfort. And all in all, I thought it worked out really well for me. And then, uh... This jackass named Saddam decided to fuck up my plans for a nice, easy life. What an asshole. Which brings me to my topic this week. 32 years ago, the week this podcast was released, combat operations began in Operation Desert Storm. Aw, cute! For those of us living in the shadow of Second Bush's war in the desert, uh, Desert Storm seems like far off, maybe even quaint. It was, after all, six weeks of bombing and 100 hours of tanks driving around shooting shit, and then some parades, which I have to say is exactly what it was. The whole thing was kind of like something to uh, wash the, the lingering bitterness of that whole Vietnam War thing from our national psyche. It's a, a bit of a, a bit of a, I don't know, what's the word? Palette cleanser? Yeah, exactly, a palate cleanser, the kind of thing that can make America feel tough again. So uh, let's dig into Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, our feel-good war from 1991. Where do I even begin with this story? I mean, I could guess I could go all the way back and explain why the Middle East is so fought over in the first place. How about no? Yeah, good point. We covered that in episode 349, Gas, 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 No One Rides for Free. Well... And I could start with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire after World War One. Too early. Hmm, good point, good point. Okay, uh, what about the partition of the Middle East after World War II? Skipped the end. Hmm, all right, well, I guess the real reason was that uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was widely considered to be a big pussy. Now we're talking. Which is strange because Poppy Bush was a decorated naval flyer who flew 58 missions and was shot down during World War II. George H.W. Bush was many things. He's a war criminal. But not a pussy. What he was was a patrician, a Yale-educated Ivy League elite who had been in government for decades and had been the director of the CIA, which was why Ronald Reagan... Ah, ah, he said it! He said it! Yeah, I'm going to say Reagan a lot during this episode. No need to repeat that. That's why he tapped George to be his running mate because Ron knew fucking all about foreign policy and Bush was a wonk. When George stood next to Ronnie, the strapping image of American manhood with his dyed hair and his makeup, he came across as rather 
less than rugged. So much that when George announced his candidacy for president in 1987, Newsweek magazine ran a cover emblazoned with Bush battles the wimp factor. Why did they do this? Well, I'm not making this up. A comic strip called him one. Nobody gives a shit about Doonesbury. Now, come on, chop, chop. Yeah, Doonesbury. Now, today, that seems a little strange that this Doonesbury comic strip could belittle a man like George H.W. Bush. But back in the day, Doonesbury, being at a Doonesbury strip, was basically being the Twitter main character at the time. And uh, what did Doonesbury say about Poppy? Quoting from a Rolling Stone article, quote, Cartoonist Gary Trudeau had newsman character Roland Headley Jr. doing a stand-up outside the White House announcing in a White House ceremony today, Bush will formally place his embattled manhood in a blind trust, unquote. Oh, snap. And so it became George's solemn mission to prove to America, the world, maybe himself, that he was a manly man. And if a lot of brown people had to die, well, that's just politics, baby. He had his first shot not long after he took office when Manuel Noriega, the president of Panama, who absolutely was definitely engaged in drug smuggling and money laundering for the Colombian cartels. But he also works for the CIA. Shh, we, we, don't, we don't talk about that. We're never supposed to mention that part. Anyway, Manuel had slipped his leash and was doing all sorts of shit down in Panama. So American service members got killed. So Poppy sent in the military in a massive invasion of a sovereign nation by the United States without international sanction. The result was 23 dead GIs, most of which came from friendly fire, a thousand or so dead Panamanians, mostly civilians, and one of the most heavy metal standoffs you've ever heard when U.S. forces played heavy metal music over loudspeakers to drive Manuel Noriega out of the Vatican embassy where he was holed up. The entire playlist, including Judas Priest, Van Halen, Twisted Sister, and Ozzy Osbourne, is preserved for posterity in a YouTube playlist called from none other than the National Security Archives up on YouTube. It fucking rocks, and you damn well know I included it in the show notes. Now, you would think this would be enough for George's dick to feel big again. I mean, after all, Ronnie got his stiffy up by invading a small Caribbean island to rescue a couple of dozen medical students and kill some Cubans. But a, a few months later, a bigger and better dick pill would be handed to Poppy, all gift-wrapped. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, at this hour, Iraq remains in firm control of the tiny, oil-rich country of Kuwait, and there is no indication that those Iraqi troops, some 100,000 of them, will be leaving soon. They invaded Kuwait last night, United States time, in the middle of the night, Kuwaiti time, and they have taken control of that tiny country, which was not prepared to defend itself, of course. It only has about 20,000 troops altogether. It's about the size of New Jersey. And Iraq, a battle-tested country, is led by a man by the name of Saddam Hussein. He has grand designs for his own personal empire, and of course, he badly needs the oil revenue of that country. Yeah, on August 2nd, 1990, Iraq decided now would be a good time to, you know, just slip over the border into their neighbor Kuwait and kind of take it over. Now, there are several reasons why Iraq thought this would be a good idea, some of them based on how things were chopped up post-World War II, some based on tribal relations. There, there might have been even one or two Kuwaiti royals who stood to benefit from Iraq doing this. But the big reason came down to two things. The first thing was Iraq owed for Kuwait $14 billion in loans from the Iran-Iraq war that they didn't want to pay. And secondly, Kuwait was definitely drinking Iraq's milkshake. If you have a milkshake... And I have a milkshake. 
And I have a straw. There it is. That's a straw. You see? Watch it. My straw reaches across the room and starts to drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. By slant drilling into Iraqi oil deposits. It was the sort of thing that really should have been settled diplomatically, but you know, Saddam got a Saddam, so he just up and invaded. And look, this sort of thing happens. I mean, it's unfortunate. Well, it's unfortunate for the Kuwaitis in a way. It's pretty swell if you're an Iraqi, I guess. And what would usually happen is there would be a bunch of angry words, some threats. They'd peep speeches on the floor of the United Nations. The U.S. State Department would hold a press conference, and the president would dodge some questions at a press conference. But eventually, things would shake out to the usual status quo. After all, Saddam was our guy. A brutal dictator, to be sure, but he was our brutal dictator. We'd propped him up for decades in a proxy war against Iran and flooded him with all sorts of cool rockets and bombs. Eventually, some sort of compromise would be reached with Iraq getting their loans forgiven and the Kuwaiti government quietly being repaid by the United States on the sly, and the Iraqis would go home. This is what Saddam thought would happen. Hell, it's what the Kuwaitis thought would happen. Except, you know, there was this tiny little inconvenience. This uh, whole uh, wimp factor. In this particular case, Saddam Hussein had challenged and questioned the size of George Bush's dick. And George Bush has been called a wimp for so long. Wimp rhymes with limp. George has been called a wimp for so long that he has to act out his manhood fantasies by sending other people's children to die. So, you know, clearly something had to be done. So Poppy got on the phone and called up old family friend King Fod, the king of Saudi Arabia. From an article on www.norton.com, quote, Bush telephoned King Fahd directly on the first day of the invasion, and the U.S. leader insisted that Iraq had to withdraw. The king sounded uneasy about the invasion and agreed that ultimately, Iraq, they would have to pull out. However, when Bush offered to send a squad of F-15 fighter craft as a sign of U.S. support, King Fahd hesitated and asked Bush for further discussions. Bush was afraid that the Saudis would not be willing to resist. In Bush's words, the king's hesitations rang alarm bells in my head, unquote. And look, the king might have had some good reasons to be a little hesitant since the United States had this habit of... Uh, That's why you promised me shit you couldn't deliver. More from that same article, quote, As it turned out, much of King Fahd's hesitation was based on their interpretation of past U.S. actions. In 1979, when the Shah of Iran was overthrown, the United States offered Saudi Arabia a squadron of F-15s as a sign of support. The monarchy accepted the U.S. offer immediately, and when the planes were already in flight, the Saudis who learned publicly that the aircraft were unarmed, felt betrayed. The fact that Bush, following military plans, made the same offer to Fahd probably set off alarm bells for the Saudi monarch as well. The king also had underlying concerns about the U.S. staying power in the region. In the early 1980s, during the Reagan administration, U.S. Marines were sent to Beirut, Lebanon, to stabilize the country, but were withdrawn after a terrorist attack against those Marines. Those two concerns shaped the Saudi monarch's initially hesitancy. Unquote. In the end, it would take the work of none other than one Dick Cheney, who was pulling the strings as Secretary of Defense at the time, to convince the Saudis to let us in by showing some satellite imagery of a 
purported Iraqi buildup on the border with Saudi Arabia. How convenient. The exiled Iraqi government official Saad al-Bazaz claimed in a 1996 book that Saddam planned to continue into Saudi Arabia as soon as a week after the invasion of the Kuwait, according to an EP article in 1996. Quote, according to the excerpts published Monday, Saddam ordered his forces to ready an assault on Saudi Arabia's oil-rich eastern provinces. Al-Bazaz said the Iraqi leader ordered the elite Republican Guard to be ready to launch an offensive on August 11, 1990, nine days after the invasion of Kuwait. The invasion plans call for four divisions or 120,000 troops to thrust into the desert to capture the oil fields more than 180 miles away, Al-Bazaz contends. The plans worked out by the commander of the guards at the time, Lieutenant General Ayad Fatal Arawi, called for a three-pronged attack that would have soldiers reach the oil fields in 10 hours, Al-Bazaz said. Everything was set for the Saudi invasion, awaiting the H-hour to be decided by Saddam. So what happened? Later, Al-Bazaz said Saddam canceled the Saudi invasion plans and ordered troops to concentrate instead on fortifying their positions in Kuwait. No one can determine what forced him to change his mind, he said. That is a secret which only Saddam knows, unquote. Or, you know, far more likely, based on what we learned about the state of the Iraqi army, Iraq simply lacked the ability to invade Saudi Arabia and subsequently hold on to Kuwait. The troops that Cheney said were stationed on the Saudi border lacked the ability to carry out any kind of offensive operations and were there to be seen by satellites they knew were overhead watching. Now look, it might seem your humble pod host might be coming across as a bit cynical, perhaps even a touch. Fucking un-American! The Iraqi invasion of Kuwait was bad, all right? Anytime another nation invades the sovereign nations on flimsy pretexts to satisfy the desire of a weak leader, it's a fucking disgrace. You know, like the United States did about 12 years later on the orders of this president's son, who was now president and was feeling that he needed a dick lift. He has a point. And considering the exact same motherfuckers were in charge in 1990 as were in charge in 2003... You're just going to have to forgive me for having some doubts about the veracity of the causes belli given by our government. And if you want to say, well, what about... Oh, the United Nations? I mean, didn't they say it was okay? Yeah, I guess. Security, the Security Council passed resolution, resolution 678, which gave Iraq until 15 January 1991 to withdraw from Kuwait and empowered the states to use all necessary means to force Kuwait out after the deadline. Yeah, th that's true. But again... I have to point out, what was really happening wasn't democracy or freedom, Iraqis still in incubators from Kuwaiti preemies, leaving the preemies to die on the, the floor of the hospital. That, that, that didn't even happen. It was on the news, but it never fucking happened. What had happened was, was one simple fucking thing. Oil, that is. Black gold. Texas tea. Quoting now from Wikipedia, quote, One of the main concerns in the Western world was the significant threat Iraq posed to Saudi Arabia. Following Kuwait's conquest, the Iraqi army was within easy striking distance of Saudi oil fields. Control of these fields along with Kuwait and Iraqi reserves would have given Saddam control of the majority of the world's oil reserves. Iraq also had a number of grievances with Saudi Arabia. The Saudis had lit some $26 billion during the war with Iran, and the Saudis had backed Iraq in that war as they feared the influence of Shia's Iran Islamic Revolution on its own Shia minority. After the war, Saddam felt that he should not have to repay the loans due to the help he had given the Saudis by fighting Iran, unquote. So it was that Operation Desert Shield, a 
holy defensive operation that would place over half a million troops, 400,000 of them American, the remainder of coalition, inside Saudi Arabia in a purely defensive, not at all invasion, going to happen sort of way, just in case to be sure, you know, as a hedge against a further Iraqi aggression. Now, imagine you are a 21-year-old guy named Dave. And you're just kicking it in San Antonio, going to bomb dog school before heading over to a new assignment in Korea with just over a year left in your enlistment. Why would I do that? It builds dramatic tension. Now, here I was. I was feeling pretty damn good. Everything was lining up nicely for me, my future. I could do my last year, get out of the military and head off to a life of, well, I still don't have a fuck clue, but at that time, at least I was going to get out of the service. And then, and then I turned on the news one afternoon and I heard, we're going to fucking war. And I was like, what? Did he say what I think he said? We were, in fact, going to war. I want to point out a very important fact that I think eludes a lot of people. Like I said, I didn't want to join the military, and I definitely did not want to go to war. I joined because my parents told me I had to get a fucking job. And I thought, yeah, I can make some money, go to college or something. Even if, even if we went to war... Well, I was in the Air Force, so if there was a war, I reasonably assumed it would be a nuclear war, meaning I was exactly the same amount of fucked as everyone else. No big deal. But this, this wasn't like that. Oh, no, 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 no. This was an old-fashioned war, and I had learned enough about what Air Force cops did in Vietnam to know that I had no place doing any kind of shit like that because the boy was telling me if you're in the army and there's a war you have to go and fight that's true well i mean blimey i mean if it was a big war somebody could be hurt <laughs> watkins why did you join the army uh, for the water skiing and for the travel sir <laughs> not for the killing sir i asked him to put it on my form sir no killing watkins are you a pacifist no sir i'm not a pacifist sir i'm a coward I mean, I, was, I could go either way on pacifism and coward, but what, what's important was I was dubious about the whole thing from the beginning. That, that's when it happened. I talked to my dad. Do you have any idea what my fucking dad told me? Clearly not. He told me not to worry about it. You might wonder why this offended me. Well, well, I'm going to tell you. The reason I didn't have to worry about it is that he was going to go to war and since a father and son could not be in a war zone at the same time, I had nothing to worry about because he would be the one to go. <laughs> I'm not a fucking hero or anything, but, you know, this bothered me because my dad had already gone to war before he was actually in Vietnam. And since he had done that, it, it didn't seem right that he would have to go to another war at all. And I told my dad, well, that's bullshit. That if anyone's going to go to war this time, well, it just had to be me. And you know what he fucking did to me? Again, no. He fucking pulled rank on me. Not, not as like my dad, because I'm fucking 21 years old. What's that going to do? No, he pulled rank on me in the military sense because he was an officer and I was an enlisted. So he ordered me to shut the fuck up go to Korea and sit out the war drinking soju and mess around the Korean working girls. Not so many words. But that effectively was what he was saying. I was pissed. I was legit pissed. I had no way. Again, I didn't want to go to war, but if someone had to go to war, reasonably, it should have been me. You know what happened? For the last time, no. 
Yeah, he went to Saudi Arabia. I went to Korea, drank soju, and messed around with Korean working girls. Thank you for your service. Of course, dumbass me. I, I never once thought about how my dad as an administrative officer in a support position was never going to be on the front lines of anything other than maybe the chow hall. And my dumbass might actually stand some small risk being in danger. It was the Air Force after all. So <laughs> the choice was actually really simple, logical. And here's the love promotable for my dad and not for me. You see, he stood to gain rank if he went over. Well, I didn't. He wasn't being a hero either. I mean, he definitely didn't want me in harm's way. But he also knew that his odds were exponentially better than mine of coming through this fine and <laughs> mine were already really good. You want to know what the really bitter irony of all this was? Just tell us, bitch. He got fucked over. He had to leave the Air Force and unlike me, he loved the Air Force. What happened was is all the pilots got promotions regardless of what they actually did and officers like my dad were passed over and forced out on the drawdown that came after the war. All things considered, he should have just let me go because in hindsight, the, the risk I was taking was go, of going over there was actually equivocal to the case of the crabs I got in Korea, which were itchy but hardly worthy of a purple heart. Now, most of you will remember that when Bush Jr. did this little shit show in 2003, most people were down with the clown when it came to going back to Iraq. There were plenty, plenty of reasons for this. All the lies. Yep, that and that whole 9-11 thing that we were lied about. In 1990, there was no reason for Americans to support a war. I guess maybe gas prices, but there wasn't really a major spike after the invasion of Kuwait. Logically, Americans would demand some kind of reason for all the money and troops suddenly being poured into a country that had nothing to do with the U.S. and had frequently been a thorn in our side. Surely, there must have been some protests, right? Wrong, 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 wrong. Now, America was stoked to go to war. The country had a giant hard-on with a yellow ribbon tied around the dick. We didn't start out that way. In the early days of the crisis, people were not at all sure that the wimpy guy in the White House had the gonads to stand up to mean old Saddam. From an article entitled War Policy, Public Support of the Media by William, w. William N. Darley, quote, In the months immediately following Iraq's 1990 invasion of Kuwait, the public approval rating for President George H.W. Bush's handling of the war declined from 76% for approval in August 1990 to 54% in October 1990. The decline was widely interpreted but even by those in the White House as a reflection of public dissatisfaction of a growing perception of a seemingly ineffectual policies in response to Saddam Hussein's continued occupation of Kuwait, unquote. But as the troops began to flow into the Gulf and the rhetoric out of the White House became increasingly bellicose, people began to rally around the flag. Now, back in those days, if you wanted to take the temperature of the public, Saturday Night Live used to be a pretty solid thermometer. This was the cold open for December 15th, 1990. 400,000 brave Americans await my order to annihilate Iraq. <laughs> and none of us want war in that whole area out over there. But as commander in chief, I'm ever cognizant of my authority to launch a full scale orgy of death there on the desert sand. Probably won't. But then again, I might. Now, if we, do, if we do go to war, I can assure you it will not be another Vietnam because we have learned well the simple lesson of Vietnam. Stay out of Vietnam. <laughs>
It was a fucking national obsession. This cannot be another Vietnam. Everyone was like, we can't make the same mistakes we did in Vietnam, which is ironic because the first and biggest mistake was getting into Vietnam in the first place when no one had the time for rational thinking. America was ready to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And look, all the stores were out of bubblegum. You might be wondering why America was all of a sudden so fucking bloodthirsty. Well, it's simple. We saw it on CNN. CNN was still relatively new in 1990 when the crisis kicked off, and CNN would balls deep on war coverage. They rushed reporters to the Gulf, including Baghdad, and during the buildup, CNN would feature breathless videos of troops arriving in Saudi Arabia by the thousands as khaki-clad reporters did stand-ups on the flight line. Back in the studio, endless spots featured retired generals talking about the awesome power of the Iraqi military and whispering dire warnings of Iraq's chemical weapons stockpiles and how the elite... But the Republican Guard is still out there. ...was going to be fucking everywhere. By the time the war started, the Republican Guard were regularly portrayed as 10-foot-tall, bulletproof super soldiers that ate lead and shit bullets. America was riveted to the war, and that meant America was riveted to CNN. It was a ratings bonanza. So, of course, CNN was going to run more and more war coverage. War was good for business, and CNN and every other TV network had a vested interest in cheerleading the war. The idea of journalistic integrity Well, (laughs) that was for newspapers and magazines. You see, what we need is more wolf blitzers standing on a sand dune. And when the war finally kicked off, these fuckers actually got a goddamn nickname. Arthur Kent, or as he's now known, Arthur the Scud Stud. And you cannot run 24-hour coverage of uncritical propaganda and not have an influence on how people feel about the war. And all of that propaganda was working. Again, from the Darley Report, quote, Those approving of his handling of Iraq's invasion of Kuwait rose 24 points. Those approving of the way he was handling the Iraq situation rose 28 points. Those approving of the job he was doing as president rose 18 points. Those trusting him to make the right decisions on war went up 20 points. These indices generally remained high throughout the war, and Bush's popularity took another bolt upward to a phenomenal 89% through March of 1991, unquote. Yes, pod friends, the war was popular, but most importantly, the war was marketed. Merchandising, merchandising, where the real money from the movie is made. I mean, why wouldn't it be? Because we had fucking trading cards. For the kids. The AP reported in 1991, quote, the men and machines of the Persian Gulf War have been turned into collector's items by the same people who helped Mickey Mantle and Hank Aaron worth saving. Baseball card producer Tops has distributed millions of the new Operation Desert Storm cards, which showed stealth fighters and Patriot missiles, President Bush and General Norman Schwarzkopf. As soon as the word was out, people were asking for them, said Larry Robbins, owner of Candle Coins and Stamps. There's been a high demand, real high demand. Robbins' first shipment of 1,728 card sets was gone within four days, and he's ordered more. Unquote. God bless America. I mean, it didn't stop with trading cards. Quoting now from an abstract of an article titled, A Geographer Looks at Desert Storm's Trading Cards, quote, Material culture enthusiastically reflected the overwhelming public support for Operation Desert Shield, i.e. the military buildup, and Desert Storm, the military offensive. 
Merchandise ran the gamut from t-shirts, bumper stickers, pins, commemorative plates, mugs, yellow ribbons and American flags to marquees, billboards, Saddam Hussein bar- dart games, video games. A, a 29-cent stamp commemorating the successful military operation was also released by the U.S. Postal Service. In these and many more diverse forums, the Persian Gulf Wars ephemerally became ubiquitous on the American landscape, unquote. America was fired up for this war thing we were in it to fucking win it and there was no way in hell after all this time all this money and all this merch there wasn't gonna be a payoff i mean saddam hussein could have literally crawled out of kuwait on his hands and knees beating his back with reeds and wailing an atonement for his sins those tanks they were gonna fucking roll the budget was spent the cameras were in place the actors were in possession and by fucking god we were gonna have a fucking war Fortunately for Bush and for America, Saddam Hussein was just as stupid, vainglorious, and power mad as he was 12 years later. And the deadline of January 15, 1991, arrived with Iraqi forces still in Kuwait and the world holding its breath to see what would happen. The first day passed. And CNN was edging so hard, you could see pre-cum all over the camera lens. And as the second day slipped into night, Wolf Blitzer's groans of climax had to be stifled by biting his lips so hard it was becoming bloody. How much longer could Bush hold back? When will that big old red, white, and blue nut go to bust all over the faces of the world? I'm coming! We were waiting and waiting and waiting until finally, yes! Oh my God! Oh my God! Fucking yes! 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 At 2.45 a.m. Baghdad time, the United States Air Force shot webs of sticky jizz on the upturned faces of CNN reporters. Well, technically, they they just launched a smart bomb bukkake all over Iraq. And that is where we will pick it up next week for part two of Operation Desert Storm. So hold on. I'll go get a towel and we'll clean you up a little bit. (laughs) That is it for our show this week. 32 years ago, my friends and I were getting drunk watching the war on TV. At least we were until the alert klaxons started going off because the North Koreans were doing some weird shit up on the DMZ. But that, that's a story for another time. When we come back next week, I guess we'll talk about the war. Though not too much because we all know how that went. Spoiler alert. We won. Then we can get into the good, how good it felt to be in winners and how it didn't take long for people to sour on that feeling. So you got that to look forward to. Speaking of souring on things, rate and review the show wherever you get your pods or shout us out on the social, whatever feels right. That way other folks can find us, take a listen to our podcast, and sour on your podcast opinions. If you like what we do, kick us a dollar at patreon.com slash podcast. You can think of it as a donate and support veterans if you like. And then, look, it's really important that you do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise... You'll have no choice but to create a coalition of nations to enforce the United Nations Security Council resolutions on podcasts, closing credits. And frankly, that just sounds like a lot of work for him. And so for me, Dave, seriously, you you want me to go and fight Bledsoe, producer? I was seven years old when the Gulf War kicked off. Gavin and all the fictional Republican guards on this show, we want to say, war, what is it good for? 
Well, it turns out ratings, mostly. And we'll see you all next week. But the trying was very revealing. What makes a person so poisonous, righteous, that they think less of anyone who just disagreed? She's just a pacifist. He's just a patriot. If I said you were crazy, would you have to fight me? Fighters for liberty, fighters for power, fighters for longer terms. What the hell were you thinking, stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions? The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Why can't we attack George Bush?